thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So the study that we're going to continue today is centered around the tabernacle, chapter 25 and 26 of the book of Exodus. Um, those of you who may not have been with us last week, I have, some, uh, I have a few copies still of um, a bunch of papers I've collected about the tabernacle. So I'm just going to pass them around. If you have a copy, great. If you don't, please um, do take a copy. Remember that last week in chapter 24, very important chapter, brings to close the ratification of the covenant, where we saw a number of things that have happened. Number one, we did notice that the ratification of the covenant happened before the golden calf. Not too long before the golden calf, but before the golden calf. And during that ratification, people gave their assent that whatever God says, they will do. And then there was the sprinkling of the blood, and I did mention to you that this, the word sprinkling is the exact same word in the Greek, baptismos, used for baptism. So they were baptized into Moses, as later St. Paul will say in his commentary on that passage. And then the, the elder were invited to the table of the Lord, midway through the section of the, midsection to the mountain. And finally, the... Um, Moses went all the way up to the mountain where God was to give him the tablets of the law. And instead of giving the tablets of the law, God spent quite a bit of time talking about the tabernacle. I also did mention to you that there is this very strong connection that we tend to forget about between morality, that which leads us to holiness, and liturgy. And our own spiritual prayer, contemplative prayer. These three are connected. You cannot grow in morality the way God wants you to grow without the liturgy. In fact, you can't do anything without... You know when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing? Most of us tend to understand that as personally. We take it as a personal thing. It's me and Jesus. So in this personal relationship, apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. Which is true. Absolutely true. But how does Jesus enable me to do something? Me personally. How does he do it? And does it matter? Well, we know how he does it. Through the influx of grace in our soul. Without grace, we can do nothing. Okay, how do I get grace? Does Jesus from heaven shower grace sort of... uh, 
uniformly on the whole world, like a big sprinkler? Is that how he does it? No. He chose a very specific mean. Amen, amen. I say to you, I have desired, with great desire, to celebrate this Passover with you. And that mean is the liturgy. Therefore, the apart from me you can do nothing is almost synonymous to apart from the liturgy you can do nothing. Now, the word liturgy, you hear me use it all the time. In the Eastern rites, today, liturgy literally means what in the Latin rite we call the Mass. Um, and the Mass is only used as a word to designate the liturgy in the Latin rite because it comes from um, uh, the dismissal, right? Missa est, which is very interesting if you think about it, that we call the whole liturgy by the word that allows us to leave. I mean, it does, <laughs> it does connote something about our relationship to the liturgy now, doesn't it? And in, in, in a positive sense, it's because we're going out in the world to, to evangelize, to bring the word of God to others. But there's also the fact that we are actually leaving. Right? The, the Greek word, liturgy, means what? What does the word liturgy mean? Because it's very revealing. Do you know what it means? Literally? It means... Public service. In ancient Greece, anyone who conducts a public service would be engaged in a liturgy. That's what it means. You are taking part of a public service for the good of the city, for the good of the citizens. Therefore, what is liturgy? It's a public service. It's not... It's not a personal worship of God. Never was intended to be this way as a primary meaning. I don't come to Mass to worship personally. As if, by this I mean, I don't care about the others around me. And I don't care about those. And I've told you about that already. How, for instance, in the Latin rite, when we get to the Confiteor, at the beginning of the Mass, I confess to, Right? And to you, my brothers and sisters, and we say these words, and we don't even look around, and we don't even think about the people around us as my brothers and sisters. We say them because I have to say them, but I can care less about everybody around me. Right? To pray for me, and I don't think about praying for all those around me. I don't think that God, from all eternity, had predisposed me to come to this Mass, to be with these people, because He expects me to pray for all of them. Public service. Public service. Our conception of the liturgy is warped. It's at the feel level. Right? We come here to see what we get instead of thinking about what we're supposed to do. It'd be like a bunch of guys who are supposed to go pick up the trash in the city, public service, who complain about the fact that when they pick up the, the, the trash... They don't, feel, they, don't feel, they don't feel good about it. You see how silly it is? Well, it's exactly the same thing with our approach to the liturgy. We think we have to come here because we need to feel good. But that doesn't work this way. God does want us to feel good, but not this way, not our way, His way. What is His way? The three pillars. The liturgy. You come to offer public service. As a result of that, God nourishes you. Because we can never outdo God in generosity. What we give Him is really usually poor. 
is wretched, is we do it half-heartedly. Most of us don't know how to celebrate a liturgy well. Most of us do it really poorly, right? Most of us have, you know, um, partly good intent and a lot of selfish intent baked into the whole thing. And God knows that. He knows that. He accepts it. He accepts it willingly. Not on account of our action, but on account of His church. You know, in the Latin, right, the beautiful prayer? Do not, do not, um, what does the priest say? Do not give us what we deserve. Do not look at our sins. Do not look at the sins, but look at the holiness of your church. Right? So we're asking God to overlook our sinfulness, because we're realistic, but to look at the holiness of the whole church, and then to treat us accordingly. And God does. He obliges, because He's a good God. And He loves us. Right? But the point is that we are coming to fulfill our duty, our duty to worship God and to give Him the glory. That's what Sunday is all about. But we do it half-heartedly, but yet God nourishes us. And it's this nourishment that He gives us that should or enables us to do the thing that He wants us to do, which is what? What does God want? What is the work of God? First and foremost, before all else. No, 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 not to love. Work, the work, work. No, no, uh, before, before any of this. No. The work of God is to grow in holiness. The morality. That's the work of God. That's first and foremost, because without this, everything else is empty. St. Paul, right? If I go feed the poor and do this and then the other, and I have not loved, I'm nothing. What is to love God? It's not the feeling. It's not the feeling. It's to be like God, right? How do we become like God? Or how do we become God-like? How? By feeling good? No. By what? Holiness, right? What does holiness require? Holiness requires integration of the entire person, spiritually, intellectually, psychologically, emotionally, physically. We are one. There is no inner division in us. Because God is one. Yeah? How do, how do we do that? You've got to get those passions. You've got to rein them in. You've got to get them to listen to right reason. As right reason is illuminated by the grace and wisdom of God. Yes? But how do you do that? You have to work at it. That's your part. That's what God enables us to do. To work on our passions. And when you do that, you're growing in holiness. As a result, you're pleasing God immensely. So somebody, somebody pushes your buttons, and this time around, you bite your tongue. And you smile. Now, you and I may not know that, but in that little biting the tongue and smiling, in that little effort you just did, you may have saved 200 souls. Just because you did that. You know why? Because you and I can't save anybody, much less ourselves. There's no way we can save anybody. But you just pleased Jesus so immensely by the little effort that you made that He fulfills your wishes. That's why. Now, don't take it from me. Take it from one of the greatest saints of this century, Saint Therese of Lisieux. How, how did she become such a great saint? What did she do? 
What did she do? Yeah? Okay. Liturgy feeds morality. Now, 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 now that you are working on these two, you would be on your own, on your own, drawn to what? Say that again? Holiness. Yeah, but uh, I mean, I'm, I'm having a person in mind. Who you'd be drawn to? God, Jesus, right? You'd be drawn particularly, not just God as in God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but particularly, why? Because he's also, he's God, but he's also man. So now that you're working on your morality, on your virtues, what do you start wondering? Well, how did he do it? Because you want somebody to teach you. Yeah? Holiness is not some sort of an intuitive thing that falls down from heaven and hits us. It's hard work. Well, if you're going to work at it, don't you want a, a master to teach you how to do that? Well, then you start looking for that, wouldn't you? So you be attentive to the lives of the saints. You read their writings. You become preoccupied to learn from those who are holy. You become interested in what the church has to say because the church is holy. And then you think, wait a minute, I can go talk to Jesus about this. So on your own, you become drawn to solitude. To a time of prayer where you can sit with the Lord, not to ask Him about stuff, but just to meditate on His holiness, on His person, so that you can imitate Him. By the way, imitating Him is a command. He wants us to imitate Him. You see how the three works? You see how it's structured? How from the very beginning in His plan... The liturgy is absolutely a central piece. And if you think about yourself going to heaven apart from the love of the liturgy, you're not going to get very far. Yeah? I had a question last week in the other Bible study I do on, th- on Tuesdays. It's the same Bible study, but I do it again at my house. And the question was, well, how do we make our kids you know, celebrate the liturgy the right way? How do we... How do you motivate your children to celebrate the liturgy the right way? And there is, in what I've told you, there is actually a very important principle that you have to bear in mind. And that is, do not expect your children to celebrate the liturgy the right way without expecting them to grow in every aspect of their moral life. The two are interconnected. Your kids aren't not... The reason why they don't come to church, or they come to church and they slouch, or they come in sandals, or in flip-flops, or in jeans, they're not paying attention to how they're dressed, they're not paying attention to anything, they're in a maze, or in a haze, or they're out there somewhere. It isn't because it's boring. It's a mistake on, any, on the part of anybody to think that they, we have to make it more interesting for them. It never works this way. It will never work this way. Never. You can't compete with Elton John. You're not going to be able to do that. Or whomever the Elton John of this time is. No. The reason why they're not interested is because their moral life is dead. Nobody's telling them you have to grow in fortitude, in justice, in prudence, in temperance. They don't even understand what the four cardinal virtues are. They have never studied them. They, They know none of that. 
So don't expect them to love the liturgy where their moral life is bankrupt. And vice versa. Be very realistic and don't expect them to grow in morality if their liturgical life is bankrupt. It just doesn't work this way. Don't take it from me. This is his plan. Why did Moses go up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments? Moral life. This is the morality given to him. And instead, he spends a whole bunch of chapters, God that is, talking about the tabernacle. Do you understand? You need to be in tune with God's plan for us. Not fabricate a plan that you think works and then put it into his mouth. It just doesn't work that way. So, with that in mind, we're going to spend time on these chapters. And it's sort of taken from a bunch of different places. And I'm going to be jumping you know, here and there and everywhere. But today we're going to go through... One, two, three, four, five, six points. There are going to be some general observations on the, if you will, internal elements of the tabernacle. We're going to focus on the internal elements. And by internal elements, I mean the pieces that are inside the tent. Then we're going to look at some historical considerations which are important. We're going to talk about the Genesis connection. Very clear, very, very central to our understanding of the liturgy. What the liturgy is in God's eyes. We'll look at the heavenly pattern. Because everything that God gave Moses to do, he was supposed to do according to a pattern God showed him, which we call the heavenly pattern. We're going to look inside the tabernacle, see what's in there, and finally talk about the material for the tabernacle. I'm going to mostly stay uh, connected with the, with the with, um, first meaning, the literal meaning, because there is, as you can tell, quite a bit to cover before I do so, I'm going to point out very briefly two um, controversies surrounding all of this, which I am not going to cover in any detail. Uh, the first one centers around the um, Exodus 33, uh, verse 7. Even though I'm not doing Exodus 33 today, I just want to mention it because you may hear of it or you may not, but in case you do... Um, there is a notion among many exegetes that there are actually two tents. That the one described in 33.7 is not the one described here. Okay? I'm going to ignore all of this. It, it is really irrelevant as far as we're concerned. But I'm, I do mention that there is a controversy surrounding the question whether it's one tent or two tents. Right? As far as I'm concerned, I'm just going to stick with the text. It's one tent. The second one has to do with the enclosure there's been quite a bit of a study, an intensive study done on the material used for the building of the wooden enclosure of the entire thing. And according to some studies, it would seem that the wooden enclosure would have weighed about 50 tons, which from a transport standpoint would have been problematic. So there are a number of <clears throat> variation on that theme where they would explain how that would have been lighter. As far as we are concerned, and for the purpose of the study, it makes no difference. I'm mentioning these things because there, are, because there are difficulties in understanding the text, but 50 difficulties do not add to one doubt. They're just difficulties, and they are tangential to our study. I'm just mentioning them in passing. All right. Now, the very first aim of the tabernacle was to care for the people, for their spiritual welfare, while in the desert. Now, remember, 
as far as they are concerned, how long do they have to stay in the desert at, that, at this juncture? What is their thoughts about staying? How long do they think they're going to stay in the desert? Pardon? A few months, maybe a year at most. Because, you know, it might be a big population moving them forward, maybe a little slow. And then maybe some wars you have to fight and whatnot. But maybe a year. The reality is that they stayed there for 38 to be precise. 38 years. God knows that already. So if you think about it from Moses' angle, he goes up to the mountain to receive the laws. Because these are necessary to close the covenant. You need to have the laws inscribed on tablets for the covenant to be complete. He gets up there and God sits him down and spends all these chapters talking to him about the build of the tabernacle. And Moses is saying, but, okay, why can't, you, can't we, can't it all just wait for us to get to the Holy Land first? Why do we have to spend time talking about all of this? And besides, Lord, you told me you're going to be in the midst of the people. Why do we have to build a separate tent and curtains here and curtains there and this and that? Why all this complexity? Why do we have to do all of this? In a year at most, we're in the Holy Land and we can build something over there. Why do I have to worry about it right now? Do you understand? Moses would have gone through these thoughts. I mean, at least those thoughts would have hit him because his understanding of God's plan is that you took us from Egypt. And how long did it take him to go through the whole thing? A couple of months. In a couple of months, they were out of Egypt, right? It wasn't a long time before they were out of Egypt. Okay, so therefore, it's not going to take us long to get back into the Holy Land and then we'll start building over there. Why, why, why spend all this time talking to us about the tabernacle? Right? It'd be like you sit your son who's flying to Paris for three weeks. And you sit him down and you start to teach him French history. Starting with the revolution. And then you move on teaching him French grammar and conjugation. And on and on and on. For 40 days, he's going to spend two weeks in Paris. What do you think he'd be thinking? My dad is a nutcase. Do you understand? The, the proportion of time spent talking about the subject is completely... Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's not... It, it doesn't seem to fit the bill. It's too much. But God knew already what they were going to do. And He knew about the Levitical order. And He knew about all of this. And He is giving instructions that need to be followed in preparation for what is to come. Do you see the walk of faith that Moses had to go through? Because God didn't tell him, oh, I'm doing all of this, by the way, because this is what's going to happen, Moses. Sometimes God reveals to you what you're going to do first. And then he gives you the means to do it second. And that's not easy. If you really think about it, that's not easy. Mother Angelica, cloistered nun, saw what TV was doing to people, and she told the Lord, I want one of these. No idea about TV, no idea how to run a station, nothing. God called her to run a TV station for a cloistered nun, and then he gave her the means to do it, in this order. Other times, God 
gives you the means to do something first and then tells you to do it. Second, that's not easy either. Because you go through the whole motion wondering, why am I doing all of this? What's the purpose? Well, you wait and see. Both of them have have a walk of faith built into them. And that's what happens to Moses here. God is giving him all the details first, and then he'll reveal to them why they're going to be needed later. Okay? So, the ground plan, as we said, has three parts. The Holy of Holies, the Holy Place, and the Court. And then you can refer to these uh, uh, diagrams I've passed along to see that. And the outer court, containing only the altar of burnt offering and the laver, is of equal size with the inner court that contains the holy place and the holy of holies. It is supposed to be mobile because they're going to be carrying this with them as they wander in the desert. And it indicates hierarchy. It indicates hierarchy. The hierarchy of grace. The hierarchy of grace because... God will communicate to Moses within the Holy of Holies on the mercy seat. From there, it will go to the holy place, out from the holy place, into the outer court, and then to the camp. That's how the communication happens. God is here, the people are there, and the two don't meet. You see that? Yeah? Conversely, the people will bring their petition to the priest in the outer court. The sacrifice will be offered in the outer court, not in the holy place. The two do not meet. Yeah? So the channel of grace fundamentally in the old covenant is inexistent. It does not exist. Hence, the whole thing that we see described here Though holy maybe is a, um, it's like a, a model. It's a model of the real thing, the real thing that will be founded by Jesus Christ, to which you are now invited to participate in, to partake in. It's called the Catholic Church. So these people suffered for thirty-eight years for your education, for you to learn what God wants of you. You wander in this life the way they wandered in the desert. You are wandering in this life the way they wandered in the desert. The difference is that they were fed with manna. You're fed with the body and blood, soul and divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the fundamental difference. They did not have access to the Holy of Holies. You have access to the Holy of Holies. You have the Blessed Sacrament exposed in so many churches. You can go anytime you want. You can get in and you can pray. If you fall, you can go to confession. It's amazing what God has made available to you, which was not made available to them. All right, so don't forget the hierarchy that is built in the tabernacle. And the purpose of the hierarchy is to teach us about the structure of heaven, to teach us also about our relationship to God. You, you know, you know, and any good psychologist will tell you that. You want to damage a relationship with your kids? You want to damage your relationship with your kids? Tell them you are their friends. Tell them to call you by, their, by your first name. 
And you are certain to damage your relationship with your children. Because you are now becoming a lie. You're saying there is no hierarchy where there is intrinsic hierarchy. Why? Because the relationship you have to your children is covenantal. It's a covenantal relationship, one that you did not define. You did not invent this, this, this covenant. God did. It's called marriage. And as soon as you tell them, I want to be your friend, you're basically saying to them, we're not going to live according to the covenant that God put in place. You don't go to God the Father and say, I want to be your friend. And even though I understand so often people will use this language saying, Jesus is our friend, I understand the need to say that. It is, um, it is poor theology. Jesus never spoke in those, never, never, ever used the word friend. He didn't come across and say, I'm going to be your friend. St. Paul never did that. St. James, Saint, none of them. None of the fathers. This is a, 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 this is a modern um, deformation of theo- theology because of the emotional dysfunction we live in. Jesus is way more than a friend. He's a savior. He's God. He's your Lord and Master. He's your spiritual Father. He gave you birth. I mean, anyhow, point is, it's hierarchical. In heaven, there is a hierarchy. On earth, there's a hierarchy. I already told you how in our architecture in the church, we do the people a disservice when we flatten it. Because again, we're not representing the truth of the covenant. Yes. See, the word friend used in St. John, in the Gospel of St. John, is not the way you and I would use the word friend. What he's trying to say, remember, he's saying, you're not my servants. I don't treat you as servants, I treat you as friends. What I really mean is, I treat you as a member of my household. Right? It isn't uh, the way we would address a friend today. Do, do, you, do you understand the distinction? And I should be, be more careful about this. When he says, you are my friend, it is in contrast to somebody who is a servant or a slave. Yeah? So he's bringing us up to enter into an intimacy with him. Whereas today when we use the word friend, but in that intimacy, you know, Jesus is saying that, there is hierarchy that is implied. In other words, it is a, um, a privilege that he's giving us. But he's still the strong party, we're the weak. We're not equal. Whereas when we use the word friend today, we imply equality. So therefore we assume or project that the relationship I can have with Jesus is on equal terms. The way I would have it with any of my friends today. And in that sense it was never used. Because Jesus also says, you call me master and so am I. And if I, the master, washes your feet, what should you then do? The reason why the washing of the feet is so powerful was precisely because there is inequality. Yeah? The reason why Peter reacted this way is precisely there is inequality. Do you understand what I'm trying to get at? But thank you for bringing this up. So, so that is, the, the architecture of the tabernacle is geared and structured to represent something about heaven on earth, and to teach us about our relationship with God. And therefore, just as the Jews treated the tabernacle in a 
with, with extreme reverence, and yet it was a model, we ought to treat the church with extreme reverence. But I'll tell you this, the architecture plays a huge role in allowing us to treat a place with extreme reverence. And you all know that. You enter a cathedral, and suddenly you go silent. The, the place imposes that kind of um, reverence upon you. And these days in our world, when we, in which we live, where expediency takes, takes uh, precedence to holiness, it becomes very difficult to do the same. Yet, it does not mean it's impossible. We must maintain inter- internal reverence when we enter the church. So without deportment, don't enter the church and cross your legs when you sit. Don't do that. You're not sitting amongst equal. Don't be at ease. Don't do that. This is holy ground. Act as if it's holy ground, not that you're visiting your friend. Do you see my point? And I'm not saying this so we can put distance between us and Jesus. It's not at all the point I'm trying to make. I'm trying to make the exact opposite point, which the Lord himself made, when he said, when you enter a place, do not go and sit up front. Lest somebody comes and tells you to go sit back. Go sit in the back so that somebody can ask you to come forward. What is implied with this front and back is recognize your place. And if anything, err on a side of humility. Not on a side of congeniality or on a side of ease. And what is the purpose behind that? When you humble yourself, he will raise you up. But when we raise ourselves up, what is left for him to do? Do you understand? Okay, so it's the exact opposite that will happen when we do that. It isn't that we are putting a distance between us and God. It is by we are truly reverencing God the way He ought to be reverenced. And He, on His own terms, will bring us forward to Him and call us to be His friends. It is something He do, He does on His term. We shouldn't assume from the get-go that that is a given. Because then we're sitting up front and somebody will tell us to go sit in the back. Am I making sense? Do you understand the intent of what I'm trying to tell you? Yeah? All right. Now, I'm going to mention something about historical considerations. Actually, before I do so, let me tell you one thing about the celestial blueprint, which is very interesting. There are ancient, in, in, in the ancient world, there are parallels with other mobile sanctuaries. So, for instance, in the, among the Arab Bedouin, in the pre-Islamic and Islamic uh, times and even among the Bedouin of Christian origin, there were such things as moving, moving tabernacles. So this is not unknown. It's not uh, unique, if you will, to Israel. Also, there are documented uh, Phoenician and Egyptian sources, especially from the period of Ramses II, where there were movable tabernacles. Right? And if you really think about it, God is going to work with what he has. These people lived in Egypt. They would be familiar with what is in Egypt. He's modeling his... Um, um, his uh, he, he basically is teaching them what he wants them to do using terms and concepts they would be familiar with. All right? However, the celestial blueprint is utterly unique. There are such conceptions of a sanctuary that is known... In the ancient world. So, for instance, in a building project by the Sumerian king Gudea of Lagash in 2200 BC, amongst the Egyptians as well, 
It is also known. However, the blueprint tied to the act of creation is the piece that is unique. Right? So the blueprint of a tabernacle or a temple tied to an act of creation or recreation is utterly unique. And that's what we're going to be focusing on. Now, from historical considerations, there are a number of questions around all of this. Many historians or exegetes questioned the authenticity or the realism of these buildings, of, of the building of the tabernacle in the desert, on numerous, um, for numerous reasons. For instance, um, can we believe that the Israelites had available in the desert sufficient quantities of the necessary metals and fabrics? Okay, that's one question. So, for instance, in 1974, uh, Childs, River Childs, calculates 1,900 pounds of gold, 6,437 pounds of silver, 4,522 pounds of bronze as the respective amounts of precious metals used in the building of the tabernacle. Altogether, slightly less than 13,000 pounds or 6.5 tons of metal. Where do you get all that from? Okay. This is one of the difficulties that is raised in the notion that they built this. Furthermore, another consideration is that when later on Solomon had to, had to build his temple, he relied on Phoenician artisans as construction supervisors, as related in the first book of Kings, uh, chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, rather than using indigenous laborers. So it would seem that during Solomon's time, the knowledge of the... Um, the workmanship required to build these things did not exist. Well, therefore, how did they, Israelites, know how to do this in the desert? Another observation is that the tabernacle, uh, Scripture is virtually silent on the tabernacle after the conquest. So the references are indeed few and are limited, um, primarily to um, identifying where it was erected in Palestine, as in the book of Joshua, chapter 18, 1, 1951, the first book of Samuel, chapter 1, verse 7, 222. And so if it, is, if it is so important, why were there so few allusions or why were there so few passages that spoke of the tabernacle later on? That's a good question. And the consensus, I have to tell you this, about... Um, amongst the majority of the, of the exegetes, is that there must have been something during the desert, but it was much smaller, and um, it was situated outside of the camp, and that the, the details we're talking about were dismissed as a much later exaggerated priestly tale of an unspectacular tent. And furthermore, there are two sources here. We go back to the source of the text, the P's and the E's, and, and all that wonderful stuff. And as I alluded to you earlier, the, the thought was there were really two separate tents. The one that were built, which is small and much, much, uh, much smaller text. And then later on, it was embellished and uh, increased in size, etc. Um, when I was reading all of this, I reflected on the fact that probably most of these theologians who are making these commentaries never smelted metal in their lives. Most of them have no understanding of workmanship. And yet, they all too easily pass judgment on something they don't really fully understand. There are a number of answers to some of these objections which are very simple. The reason why there is very little focus put on a tabernacle after the, they, they get into the Holy Land is because what? 
what happened when the Israelites entered the Holy Land. Pardon? No, 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 before the building of the temple. It's going to take 500 years. So what happens? They apostatize. They're busy doing other things. The last thing on their mind is the liturgy. That's why. So, God now is dealing with them on plan C and D and E. That's why there is so little focus on that. It's it's not complicated. God here told them, the intent was, here are the Ten Commandments, and here's the tabernacle. You worship here, and you you obey these these laws. And as you go through this whole process, you're going to... Discover something. Number one, the whole liturgy you're going to build around the tabernacle is very complex. And requires much blood. And it's very messy operation. Sacrificing animals and roasting them and all of this. And number two, you're going to distinct, realize these, these laws I gave you, you just cannot live by them. Now, hopefully, when you do this a couple of times, you're going to go, wait a minute, there must be a better way. There must be a better way. And then you'd come to me, and you'd ask me about the better way, and I would give it to you. Now, that's the plan. Instead, what happens? They went through this round a couple of times and figured out, you know what? There are options out there. And they're way better than this. It's called the golden calf. We had a lot more fun doing the golden calf gig. Golden calf gig. It's a greater party. It's much nicer. Let's just go back to that. They completely abandoned the ways of the Lord and went out to do that stuff. And they perpetuated this throughout most of their history. That's why there is so little focus on it because it's really a history of damnation for the most part. With a few, a few bright spots here and there. The proof is in the book of Kings. Just go and then peruse the book of Kings. Just flip through it. And so and so became a king after his father, and he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Flip, flip, flip. And so and so became a king instead of his father, and he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Flip, flip, flip. And so and so became a king, and he did what was evil. In fact, he did evil greater than what his father did. And on and on and on it went. Do you understand? This is why. As simple as that. As far as the workmanship goes... I find it very strange that everybody forgets these people were doing what in Egypt? They were doing what? So what did you think they learned to do in Egypt? Yeah, but they were builders and craftsmen and they had all all the tools and all the ways of building in Egypt. That's not, there's nothing far-fetched about that. The fact that later on in Solomon's time, which is 500 later, they forgot about this is because in the Holy Land, they had very little time to do any of this. They were either at war or still living a nomadic life. So therefore, the skills were forgotten. This is, that's it. I wonder sometimes where, what happens to people's common sense in thinking about those events in terms of real life. Now, the last thing that is really problematic for me is when they say, well, that's an exaggeration that was added later on, etc. Why add the exaggeration? What is the point? So let's assume it is an exaggeration. Then what do we gain out of it? And the other objection that I have to this whole exaggeration thing is that somehow we think that people back then would not have known that someone was messing with sacred texts and nobody would have reacted to it. But, but, but we know 
that whenever someone tries to mess with anything, anything whatsoever, you get riots. This is huge. Inserting a text like this in the mouth of Moses and saying God showed him a heavenly pattern and this whole exacting description of the tabernacle and making it all being one big lie. And it just it boggles my mind. And I think these, these exegetes, most of them have too much time on their hands. They should be working as plumbers for a little while. And maybe they'll have a more realistic understanding of Scripture. Anyhow, that's all I'll say on this historical deal. There is way more text, more commentary done on that, but I'm not going to go through this. All right, let's talk about the heavenly pattern. So, the fact that it's built according to a model indicates what? This is, I mean, this is the pattern, this is the model. Therefore, this is, it's a sign. The tabernacle, therefore, is a sign. It's not the real thing, is it? Where is the real thing? No, not here. Where is it? In heaven. In heaven. Because that's the heavenly pattern. Here's the real thing. Now, build that as a model on what I'm showing you. So therefore, that is a sign that should point people to the real thing. Now, what is behind me is real and not real at the same time. Yeah? It is sacramentally real. But it's not manifestly real, is it? It will be in heaven. Yeah? So we are in an intermediate situation where heaven meets earth. We are, as St. Paul says, in the cloud. The Holy Spirit. That's what the cloud is. We are in the cloud. So, he shows him the heavenly pattern. Therefore, this architecture comes down from heaven and God has structured it so that it teaches us about heaven. As I said earlier. And we would do better in our architecture to follow it. Not only that, it says something about the personhood of Jesus Christ. God, the true God and true man. Right? In his outlook, in his outer appearance, Jesus is like a man. Yeah? His inner life, the holy, his soul is divine. Yeah? And the head, the mountain, inaccessible to all of us, is what? His divinity. So even the whole tabernacle is an architectural representation of who Jesus is. And is supposed to teach you and I about that. That's why in our churches, in our churches, we should have a very clear distinction in the material we use for the body of the church that should be made of things that point to earth, us, stone and wood. Right? And that's why the cathedrals were built using stone. It's us, earth. And then you reach the sanctuary and you switch to more noble material. Marble was used, especially from the book of Revelation. The sea of marble, right? The crystal sea. A big dome that you start to lace with gold to indicate this zone, this inner life that is not of earth but not fully of heaven. It's both. Yes? And then the inner sanctuary, the tabernacle, is made out of gold and precious stones. Holy, heavenly. That's what should happen. But what, he, what happens here should not be made of artificial stuff. Not plastic. Not stuff we made. It should be made of natural things. Wood and stone. Why? Because it talks about 
creation, us, how God created us. This, supposed, this is supposed to be the world. This is the cosmos. This is earth. This is us. So when we start embellishing it and turning it into, I don't know, a museum or a theater or whatever, we're missing the point. Yeah? Then the sanctuary should not look like it at all. And the tabernacle should be right there, not somewhere else. Because then we're saying, you know what? Heaven, which is the most important place, is somewhere else. But not something we need to focus on. Did you see how everything is fitting? You you enter a church and you can tell a lot about morality. That's what he had in mind. This is the tabernacle as he structured it. And it is for pedagogical purpose. He's trying to teach us something about who he is, who we are, and, and the relationship that we're supposed to have with him. The heavenly pattern. The interesting thing is that the text itself in Exodus explains very little of the heavenly meaning of the tabernacle and its parts. There are very little explanation. God gives it matter-of-factly. You're going to do it this way, you're going to do it that way, you're going to do this, that, and the other. Very little explanation is given. Why do you think that is the case? Why is there so little explanation given in Scripture about the tabernacle and its meaning? In other words, God doesn't tell Moses, I want you to do it this way because of the following reasons. Nowhere does he explain it. Why? What is God saying? How do you enter this mystery? He's basically saying, I'm not telling you the best part. Why is he not telling us the best part, let alone them? What is he waiting for? Like any good father, yeah, for us to ask. For us to ask. How many of us take time to pray on our own? And how many of us take time to pray on our own and ask the Lord, specifically, allow me to enter in the mystery of the liturgy. Open it up for me. Never mind them. Look at us. How many of them of us consider that entering into the mystery of the liturgy is entering in the heart of God and asking Him something that is most pleasing for Him and that is something He really wishes to give us only if we ask? How many of us live a liturgical-centric life? Why do you think God is going to tell us anything when we are way out there somewhere else? Do you understand? Liturgy, morality, spirituality are connected. You need the three to grow in holiness. That's why he doesn't say anything. It's a mystery that must be contemplated and God invites us to enter into it through contemplative prayer. And without it, we're not going to go very far. All right. You know, this is... um, this, this, I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I'm going to tell you, this study is extremely challenging because it's very, very rich. And there is so many things in the liturgy that is bound up with our own lives that I am struggling through it. I thought I can go through the whole thing in 30 minutes, but I'm only going through the third piece now. And I don't know how far I'm going to go. But I need to point out to you the relationship between this pattern and us in three ways. First, Christ. Observe how Jesus himself 
speaks of the liturgy in his own, as an image of who he is. John chapter 2, verse 19 through 21. Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. Now the temple of Jerusalem was built according to the same pattern. The exact same pattern. It's bigger, but it's the same thing. So therefore, and then John says, they didn't understand what he was saying. He was talking about his body. But why did he use the image of the temple? Why did he say destroy this temple? Because what is the temple? It's a sign of his body. It's a sign of the body of Christ. Where do you think St. Paul came up with the notion of the body of Christ? We are the body. When he said, we are the body of Christ. What does that mean? We think somehow, you know, we have weird ideas about that because we don't even know where to anchor that image. But when he say, when he says, we are the body of Christ, what does he have in mind? What is St. Paul thinking of? The tabernacle, the structure of the tabernacle itself. We are the body because we are the main body. This is what we are. Yeah? Christ is the head. He's the holy of holy. That's what he means. You understand? It's not a mechanical picture he has in mind. This is what we think. You know, Christ is the head. We're the neck and below. But that's not all what he has in mind. He has in mind the temple as the body. So his idea of the body is hierarchical. It is liturgical. It is ecclesial. It's the church. It's not some sort of a fancy schmancy foggy thing floating out there. Hebrew 8.2, St. Paul. Now the point is what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister, so keen on the word throne, right? The word throne, where is there a throne in a tabernacle? Is there a throne in a tabernacle? Thank you, the mercy seat. You see, we think throne, oh, throne, some throne out there. No, 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 no. It's the mercy seat. It is the seat of power, but the seat of mercy of God as He manifests Himself to His people. This is a sacrament. It's a sign of the heavenly pattern. If there is a mercy seat on this thing, what is there up there? A throne. You follow? Of the majesty in heaven, and the fact he uses the word majesty is a Hebraism, because he will not use the name of Yahweh. You understand? But he's speaking of God. Alright? A minister in the sanctuary, and the true tent. Here we go. What is that tent? Any tent? The tabernacle. The tabernacle. In his image... It's the tabernacle, because that's what the tabernacle is called. It's the tent of the meeting. Tabernacle and tent means exactly the same word. Tabernacle means tent, and tent means tabernacle. Yeah? The true tent. Why does he say the true tent? Because this one is what? It's the model to the real thing. You understand? You see the imagery St. Paul uses in, in talking of Jesus? Jesus is the real minister in the tent. So therefore he's in the Holy of Holies and he's offering a sacrifice of himself to God on our behalf. Why does he say that? Because God in the desert taught them about himself. You go to the priest, you give your offerings, he will take it, offer it to God. 
Well, now you come to the church, and what do you bring with you? What do you bring with you when you come to the church, by the way? Not your sacrifices, not your prayers, not your intentions, none of that. None of that is yours. This is all God's. God gave you the ability to do all of those things. There's one thing you can bring, only one. Not your sacrifice. What? Sorrow for what? Ah, that's it. That's the one thing that is yours. Your compunction. Your compunction is the only thing that is yours. Whether you feed the poor, you heal the sick, you raise the, you convert people, you make miracles, all of that is given by God to you to reach others. And that's it. The one thing that is yours is the sorrow for your sins. That's what you can bring with you. And as a result, how do you manifest sorrow? I just sit home and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No. If you're really sorry, what do you do? You repent. What does it mean? You turn away. You turn away, right? And if you turn away, how do you do that? You show, you show you're really turning away by doing what? The work of God. Now, the sacrifices, now all these fruits show truly you're sorry. If you're really sorry, you change. Get it? That's what you bring to church. You give that to Jesus. Jesus unites it to himself and offers it to God the Father. You understand? And when you do that, what have you done, by the way? Tell me. What have you done? Your duty. That's it. All you did is your duty. Let's not get out of ourselves and thinking, oh, wow, I'm already ready. You know, move over, St. Francis. I'm right there. It's just that your duty. You are offering God the worship that is, that is due. That, that's, that's all. That's all we're doing. You understand? Okay. It's great. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to tell you it's nothing. It's great. But let's put it in the right context. It's part of our liturgy, of our worship of God. Okay. Hebrew 9, 11, 12. 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, the good things, Keanu, good things, the grace, the grace of God, that's the good things right, that have come. Now God's grace is manifest to us. Now God's grace is operative in our lives. Right? Then through the greater and more perfect tent... Again, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He's clearly indicating, don't even look at the Old Testament, don't look at the temple of Jerusalem, don't look at the temple. None of that has anything to do with the real tent up there. It's not the real thing, it's just a pointer to it. It's a sign that says San Diego. No, we got to San Diego, drop the sign. You don't need it anymore. Yeah? Okay? He entered once and for all into the holy place taking not the blood of goats and cows, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Securing an eternal redemption. Right? See how the imagery of this tabernacle is suffusing the text of St. Paul? Again, of the individual believer, in 1 Corinthians six eighteen through 20, shun immorality, key on the language, immorality. So he's talking at the moral level. Every other sin which a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. 
So glorify God with your body. You look at the tabernacle as a structure of your own body. And you see how God adorns the tabernacle and how he thinks about every single detail of it without revealing what it means. This is a building. This is something that is destined for destruction. How much more care God put in you when he created you? How much more thought and care and love. And he adorned this building with precious metal, which is destined for destruction. How much more is your soul adorned with immortal metal, the metal of grace, destined for eternal glory? And just as the tabernacle has three sections, so in you there are three sections. The outer court is what? What is the outer court? Your senses. It is the thing that interacts with the world, where the cows and the blood and all the impure things are, because you live in the world, even though you're not of the world. Yeah? That's of necessity. You have to interface with all of this. However, none of that makes it in the holy place. Where is the holy place? That's your soul. That's your soul. It's supposed to be holy. In it shines the candelabrum. What is the candelabrum? The light of Christ that shines in your soul. Yeah? And there is the table of the presence where bread and wine are offered. What is that? What do you offer in your soul to God continuously? Prayer and sacrifice, sorrow for your sins, continuously offered in your soul to God. And then what is in the Holy of Holies? God Himself reigning in your soul. This is who you are. That's what St. Paul means. Yeah? If you want to learn more about that, I wholeheartedly recommend you read The Inner Castle by St. Teresa of Avila, where she goes into quite a bit more detail in the structure of what the soul looked like, but she describes it as a castle. Same principle, same idea. All right. Now, most of the other commentaries I'm going to read to you are, and I'm going to finish with this today, is about the church, all taken from St. Paul. I always chuckle when I hear the Protestant quoting St. Paul all over the place as if he was, you know, Luther's father or something. Right? And he's the most Catholic writer we have in all of the, well, not the most, but he's a very Catholic writer. And I'll show you how that is the case. 1 Timothy 3.15 If I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God the household, what is the household of God? What is a household? No, no, no. Generally speaking, back up a little second. What is a household? One family. One family, right? So a household has what? One structure, right? Yeah, that's a household. The household of God, which is, which is the church of the living God. The church of the living God is one household. Yeah? So when people tell you, well, the church is the, you know, the body of all the believers. No, 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 no. It's a household. Yeah? And then he says, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Pillar and bulwark of the truth. What is the pillar of the truth? Where do you get the truth from? The household of God, which is the church. Do you get the truth from Jesus? No, you don't. Well, no, you don't. 
But do you get it from him? No. If you were to go to, to Jesus and say, I want to know the truth, what do you think he's going to tell him? What, is he, what, what do you think he's going to tell you? Listen to my church. You understand? You get the truth from the church. The pillar and bulwark of the truth. The church. Yeah? That's where you get the truth from. Okay. Now, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of our religion. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Okay. What, 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 why is he saying that suddenly? Because that's the truth that the church confesses. That's the mystery that the church unceasingly confesses. The mystery is that he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on the, in the world, taken up in glory. And that's what the church confesses. She gives glory to God. Okay. Hebrew 3.6 Therefore, holy brethren... Who share in a heavenly call, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also was faithful in God's house. Yet Jesus has been counted worthy of much more glory than Moses, as the builder of a house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So St. Paul's understanding of all this tabernacle business is a testi- to testify, a testimony to the things that will be spoken later. So it's a sign to what is to come. And what is that to come? As he says himself, But Christ was faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if we hold fast our confidence and pride in our hope. So, the relationship between Jesus and Moses, Moses is a model, Jesus is the realization. We are the house, they are not. Yeah? See how central this tabernacle is? Even in St. Paul's understanding of the church, it is really the foundation on which he builds all of this. Now, it gets more interesting. Ephesians 3.1.10. Yeah. Actually, Hebrew 10.21 first. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary. Why is he saying that? What does he say we have confidence to enter the sanctuary? You should understand that by now. That, makes complete, that should make complete sense to you. The sanctuary is the holy, not the holy of holies. Correct. Back then, you could not enter the sanctuary, the holy place. Could you? No. You'd stay out there. Now we have confidence to enter the sanctuary. You understand? We can enter the holy place. So he understands it as the fulfillment of what was promised. He understands the difference that in the old covenant, we are stuck out there in our court. Now we can enter. Why? By the sacrifice of Jesus that pours his grace upon us. And that grace sanctifies us and makes us worthy of entering the holy place. Yeah? Make sense? Okay. By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way. By the way, the blood of Jesus means what? As soon as you hear blood, what should you think of? Covenant. Right? Because the covenant, as we saw last week, was ratified by the blood of cows. This covenant is ratified by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, it's an eternal covenant. It will never go away. Yeah? So when you hear blood, don't just think sacrifice as in this uh, sort of um, um, separate event that happened on Calvary. What happened on Calvary is the seal of the covenant. Yeah? Yeah? Jesus sealed the covenant 
eternally on Calvary with his blood. The sacrifice of the cross, when we, you know, when we speak of the, 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 the triumph of the cross, what were we talking about? Precisely that, that it sealed that covenant forever. And therefore, in that covenant, we have our victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. You understand? Okay. By the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain. Curtain. Why does he use the image of a curtain? Because what closed the sanctuary to the outer court? The curtain. Yeah? So he opened the curtain that is his flesh. So he sees in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, an image of the body of Jesus where the curtain is the flesh. As I told you earlier, it represents his humanity. The curtain was torn, his body. Remember St. Matthew? When Jesus died, the curtain was torn. Well, that indicates that the curtain of his flesh being torn reveals what now? His divinity. And through his divinity we receive graces. Yeah? And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Sprinkled. Why is he talking about sprinkling now? What did Moses do? He sprinkled the blood. Therefore, this is a covenantal sprinkling. Yeah? So, before, we spr- we, before the, the, blood, the blood was sprinkled, what did the people say? Everything God says, we do. St. Paul is implying that. You confessed the truth of the faith. You've been baptized, sprinkled clean with the blood. Why the blood? Because the blood seals the covenant, makes it possible for you to be baptized. Yeah? You understand? From an evil conscience, morality, evil conscience. See, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Watch how he moves from liturgy into morality. Right? From an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. What does it mean, bodies washed with pure water? It means that the sting of sin has left us, but also our passions and our flesh is conformed to the Holy Spirit. Morality, liturgy. This is so essential to our understanding of the whole thing. Okay, two more quotations. Actually, three. I'll try and go them, through them quickly. I'm not going to explain everything, but I'm just going to point a couple of things. This is taken from Hebrew, Hebrew 10, verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, and now he's going to tell them the mystery, the mystery of Christ. Here it is. This is the mystery. How the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, the mystery that was not revealed was that everything that was being prepared was not only for the Jews, but for everyone, because God wished the whole world to be saved. And how does he, how does he make it possible for the whole world to be saved? Through the covenant that he sealed with his body, and it is so powerful, and his graces are so immense that they can wash away any sin whatsoever, provided one wants to be forgiven. Hence, nothing that the Gentiles did is outside the mercy of Christ. All their sins can be forgiven on account of the greatness of his sacrifice. You understand? Okay. Again, the mystery is that, but then... He's going to say something absolutely remarkable. Listen carefully. 
And this is the amazing part. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. Now he told us the mystery, now he's going to tell us the plan. Here's the plan, and it's amazing. The plan is as follows. That through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. So the wisdom of God will be made known through the church. You understand? Hmm? The church, pillar and bulwark of the truth. Through the church, the wisdom of God will be made known to, to whom do you think? No. And that's the amazing part. No, listen carefully. To the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Henceforth, the church teaches the angels. The church teaches the angels. I mean, if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what would. Talk about a way of humbling the angels. In the Old Covenant, who taught who? The angels taught us. Now, God is reversing it. The church teaches, not us. To, to St. Paul, that's a given. It's not a mystery that the church is going to teach us. He already said it, the church is the bulwark and pillar of the truth. Uh, I don't know. The angels, the principalities and dominions, will be taught by the church. Yeah. By the teachings that is revealed through the church about the nature of Christ. All the, all the encyclicals of the Holy Fathers, all the councils, all the teachings about who Christ is, about the nature of grace, all those things are revealed to the angels through the church. We take those for granted. Or we just actually, we, 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 they bore us. We don't even pay attention most of the time. And we kind of ignore them. And they're teaching the, church, the, 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 the angels. I mean, isn't that, doesn't that blow, up your, blow your mind away? Colossians 1, 24, 27. Again, another quotation along the same line. I'm just going to skip it. The last one I'm going to give you is 1 Corinthians 6, 1, 4. Listen carefully to this one. When one of you has a grievance against a brother, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, verse 2. Do you not know? You know, when somebody says to you, do you not know? What is the assumption? You're supposed to know. It's common knowledge. I mean, what's, what's wrong with you, right? Now listen. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Okay? So the saints will judge the world. Now Christ is going to judge, but the saints are participating with him in the judgment of the world. But that's not the better part. The better part is, is right now. Do you not know that we, 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 we are to judge angels. I'm quoting from St. Paul, straight out. Do you not know we are to judge angels? How much more matters pertaining to this life? If then you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who are at least esteemed by the church? He's basically telling them, in matters of morality, you're, you're having an issue between the two of you, and you go to a, to a pagan judge. What's wrong with you? Don't you understand your dignity? Don't you understand to what 
what, what glory God raised you? So, the tabernacle, the liturgy, therefore, is the means by which God is teaching us about heaven. And by this, I don't necessarily mean when you go to Mass, when you celebrate the liturgy, you are learning about heaven, as in word by word. No, your mind is illuminated. Your, your worship of God, by giving Him glory, God brings you, when you ask for it, in the mystery, in the mystery of the heavenly places, and teach you about heaven. St. Rafa, before she died, uh, she sort of... Um, seemed to be asleep, and her mother superior called her twice. And then St. Rafa told her of a vision she had of heaven. And she said, she saw these beautiful places. She describes them. She says, I was about to enter through the door. And then and her mother superior says, then what happened? And she said, you called me. So I came back. God reveals to us the glory of heaven if we were to ask for it. And we ask for it by worshiping Him as He ought to be worshipped. So you prepare yourself through the week to go to Mass on Sunday. You think about Mass on Sunday. You prepare for Mass on Sunday. By your morality, you pay attention to your deeds and acts, and you go to confession often. And then by taking time to prayer in the solitude of your heart to meet the Lord... And ask Him to lead you into the mystery that He wishes to reveal for you. This is why the tabernacle was structured the way it was. And this is why God had first and foremost on His mind the liturgy in the Old Testament as in the New. Do you understand? So I'm hoping that through all of this, I'm sorry if I've taken quite a bit of your time. So thank you for being patient but it's really important, it's really critical, especially it is an idea that we are so ignorant of. It, it, we don't have even a taste for it. This is how far we strayed from it. Mass has turned into a spectacle. It's a place where we come to, I don't know, look for, I suppose, entertainment or something. And we can hardly wait for Mass to end to get up and start talking. As if it was a little too much for us to just worship for an hour. How are we going to be able to worship for eternity? Now that's another story. You understand? Okay. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm being so um, insistent on this point because it is very important and it is not a point that we hear too much about. So I hope that you will take this to heart. I'll hope, I hope that you on your own will start to ponder this truth about the liturgy and you would then ask the Lord to reveal to you more and more the beauty of the liturgy, what he wants to you to do with your life so that your life becomes liturgical. Amen? Let's finish with a word of prayer and then we will uh, then take some questions. All right. Questions? Yes. On the subject of the Immaculate Conception, Our Lady did not use this title until the church actually proclaimed it. The, ch- the, 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 the church had proclaimed Mary as immaculately conceived, before Our Lady used that title. Yeah. Yes. Where's the mercy seat? What is the tabernacle? Yes. Yes. Uh, yes, it's, it is the same as the exposed host. The difference with the exposed host is, well, um, it's, it indicates a greater fervor on our part when there is a continual, uh, a perpetual adoration. 
because the community as a whole has to come together and set up a, um, an ongoing adoration of the Lord on part of that community. Whereas when it's in the tabernacle, there is no such pressure. That's one of the differences. I don't know if there are others, but I think that's an important one. Where did they get it from? We suppose that they brought most of the, uh, most of the precious stones with them. Um, and um, it's presumably these, the, the Israelites in, in Egypt have been hoarding gold and other precious metal for quite some time. And they must have had large quantities of it. Yes, yes. All the, yes, all the gold from the golden calf was used in the construction later on. Absolutely. Yes, but it's still a large quantity and it surprises people. But I don't think it should be a reason to think that they didn't do it because it surprises us. That, that's all. Yeah. Sure. As I said, it's a very difficult passage. We don't understand what St. Paul really meant by don't you know you're going to judge angels because the angels are in heaven, so what are we to judge them? Some suggest you might judge your guardian angel because he may not help you in all cases and they bring to, to mind the case where Padre Pio was uh, contending with the devil and was being beaten up and his guardian angels was actually flying above head and singing um, the Gloria. And after that, Padre Pio asked him, why didn't you help me in this? And apparently his guardian angels apologized. But I'm not completely sure of the story and all the details. So they bring that as an example. But it's very tenuous. We really don't know. Does it mean us? Does it mean the hierarchy? Does it mean the Pope? Does it mean the magisterium? Does it mean the apostles? What does it mean? I don't know. That's exactly what I just said. We don't know how to interpret that in light of the fact that they are in heaven. So they're saints. So what is that to judge? Well, the thing is that judging doesn't necessarily, and that's another way to look at it, it doesn't necessarily imply judging as in um, condemning but effectively bestowing upon them a glory related to the church. And it could be that in that sense, there is judgments. For instance, during the liturgy, we always mention Our Lady. Why do we mention Mary in the prayers, in the intentions? Why is Mary mentioned in the intentions? Why do we mention the saints? They're in heaven. No, 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 this is, we, we remember Mary. Yeah, it's part of the intercessory prayers. We remember her, we remember the saints. Why are we doing that? They're in heaven. Because we increase our accidental glory every time we mention them. So in that sense, there may be not necessarily a negative judgment, but a positive one. But we don't know. It's one of the things that St. Paul said that we wish he'd just spent a little bit more time explaining to us what he meant. The problem with the fallen angels is that they're already... So maybe it's the fallen angels. Possible, yes. But he didn't say fallen. He didn't say demon. Usually he would use... These terms that he usually uses principalities and powers of this world, right? The spirit of this world. He didn't, he didn't say that. He just used the generic term, angels. Some would even say, in that case, he's not really talking about angels. He's talking about messengers. Well, what messengers? Which one? The one going, what, the post office? I mean, I, we don't know. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree. It, it might be revealed at one point what St. Paul meant by this. Yes. We, the examples we gave, the re- revelation of the Immaculate Conception, something they didn't know. Right? That's an example. The uh, chapter of divine mercy. They didn't know. Right? These are truth about God in which the angels delight. Because the angels are pure spirit and what is their delight is the truth of God revealed to them. The, the, the deepening of their understanding of who God is is what really to, brings delight to their hearts. You understand? 
What, what part you don't understand in what I just said? True, but intelligence does not mean they are able to peer in the mystery of God and understand who God is. God is still eternal. I mean, infinitely more um, different than the angels are. Therefore, with all their intelligence, they cannot grasp who God is. And there are many things about God they don't understand. But, the, but these things are being revealed to them through the church. Yeah? Yeah, don't, don't um, confuse their intelligence with the, um, with the, with the, with, with them being all-knowing. They're not all-knowing. There are many things they don't know. Because for them to be able to know all things, they have to have the mind of God. They have to be God, and they're not. Did you understand? Okay. Yes. True, but that, that's, it is true that we have bodies and they don't, but that does not mean they're not able to understand how we can worship with bodies. Yeah, but I don't think... But the knowledge through experience is really a human thing, not an angelic thing. No, no, no. I'm trying to say, we as human beings may lack an understanding of something if we do not experience it. Not so the angels. Their understanding is intuitive and complete. They do not need experience to learn. When they were created, they were handed all knowledge they needed to know everything they needed to know. There's no such thing as experience for them. So for them, they probably know more about our bodies than we will ever know, even in heaven. So I'm not certain this applies. I don't think we can say because we learn from experience and the angels did not experience our body that they cannot understand it. I'll give you an example. We know that the angels are the ones who govern the world. They're spirits. I don't know what matter is. They never experience matter. But still, they know this universe way better than we will ever know it. So, I think it has really to do with the mystery of who God is. God chose to reveal all things through His bride, the church which is now higher than the angels. And that is how they themselves, being of the household of God, submit to the church and her authority and learn from her. Remember, Mary isn't just our mother. She is their mom too. When we give her the title Queen of the Universe, you understand? Okay. In that sense, by adoption, they are also adopted as the into the fold of the mother of God. Yeah? That's stupendous. Good. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.